Rebuilding the altar. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and the fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to, burnt, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses and the man of God, the man of God. They set the altar in the place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of, bo- the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made freewill offerings to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not, let me start over, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyranians to bring cedars from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen and the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, the son, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, this song. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the, sh- for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. Ezra, in a series called The Gospel According to Ezra. Let me just mention last week before we dismiss the kids. Last week we did a historical review of the, of the time period in which this book takes place, an Old Testament book of Ezra. And I, I just want to commend to you and highly recommend to you that you would, I don't usually do this, but um, to go back if you were not here last week and to you know, check out the podcast, download it or video, however you want to do it, and, and catch up with us because last week will be highly uh, important and um, It'll give you good information and beneficial as we move forward um, in the series, okay? So I want to commend you to our website. So kids, you can go. You're dismissed.
May God bless you as you study and worship the Lord. We are in Ezra 3. You know, this year, 2015, if some of you don't know this already, is Back to the Future Part 2. The year of Back to the Future Part 2, where Marty McFly and Doc Brown travel to the year, month, October 2015, a world filled with flying cars and hoverboards and self-tying shoes and flat screen TVs. If you remember, at first it was October 26, 1985. Doc Brown arrives and tells Marty and his girlfriend Jen that they need to go back. They need to go to the future for, because their children are in trouble. They're going to jail. So they jump into DeLorean and, and they fly to 2015 to help their children. But while they're there, Marty McFly purchase, purchases a gray sports Almanac, a book detailing the results of all the major sporting events from 1955, excuse me, from 1950 to the year 2000. And Doc discovers the book and warns Marty about, about profiting from time travel, that he, he should not do that. But unfortunately, Biff, the villain, gets a hold of this, of this almanac, steals the time machine, jumps into DeLorean, goes back to 955, 1955, and gives it to himself, the younger Biff, trying to get rich by gambling. And then they return to 2015, and everything has changed. So when Doc and Marty go back to 1985, Biff has become filthy rich, very corrupt, valley Hill Valley, their hometown, has become a chaotic place filled with human misery and oppression. Marty McFly's father, George, is, was killed in 1973. And Biff, was, Biff had forced Marty's mother, Lorraine, to marry him. And poor old Doc, caught up, committed to an insane asylum. Do you know what they needed at that point? They needed was a do-over. Like, let's try this again. And that's what they do. They go back to 955, 1955. Marty follows Biff, witnesses him receive the almanac, give it to his younger self. They go back to the high school enchantment under the sea dance. They get into this roadway pursuit. Marty takes the almanac from Biff, who crashes his car again right into the manure pile. You know the story. They jump back in the uh, uh, um, DeLorean. They burn the almanac and undo everything of Biff's, that Biff had done and history is returned. A do-over. Can you use a do-over this morning? How cool would it be to go back to that place, that place in time that only you know, to say, I'd like to get back there. I'd like to try it again. I'd like to pick that date and that time and that stupid decision that I made and do it over again. Wow, things could be so different. Well, the bad news is I don't have a DeLorean and you can't do that. But the good news is there is such a thing as the grace, mercy, forgiveness, and promises of God. It's sort of like a do-over. We are in the book of do-overs, the book of Ezra. God called Abraham into covenant to bless him and his descendants. From him will be kings. Multitudes of nations will come. Descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And a certain descendant will come from him that will bless the whole earth. The New Testament says 
It's Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is descended. God promised them a piece of real estate, a piece of property to which they live. God brings them out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. Fulfills his promise that they, they should fill the earth and with his glory and his presence. But instead, you know, they rebelled. They defiled the land. And God promised through the prophets that he would drive them into exile, and he did. Ten tribes to the north called Israel was ransacked in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian army. We covered that last week. And deported. Then the world power changed from the Assyrian to the Babylonians. And the Babylonian king in 605 attacked the two remaining tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem was. And then 597 and then 586, Babylonians destroyed, they conquered Jerusalem, burned the city down, burned the houses down, burned the temple down, done. Rebellion upon rebellion, they have bad decisions upon bad decision, puts God's people in exile, in captivity, in shame. And it looks like all the covenant promises of God are done. The people are done. They need a do-over. They got one. God in his mercy and his grace made a promise to them. The promise came through the prophet Jeremiah. The, prophet came, uh, the promise came through the prophet Isaiah. The world power will change from Assyrian to Babylon to Persia. God would raise up a king of Persia who would be like a shepherd to allow them to have a do-over. Another chance for another exodus, another chance to return to Jerusalem, the place of God, the promised place of God, the place where God will meet with them, the place where where God will gather, the place where they will worship him. His presence will be his Shekinah glory, his panim, his face. Ezra opens up with the promise, 70 years early in Jeremiah, has begun. God stirs the heart of the pagan king, Cyrus and Ezra 1, fulfilling Jeremiah, fulfilling Isaiah, and he makes a proclamation. The Jews may return to their promised land. And the book of Nezra gives us or narrates for us this first installment of this new exodus, this second exodus. Today we look at that return. But we want to ask this question. What was their priority? What was so important to so many people that they would trek over 900 miles of land and desert, four months on foot, just leave everything and go? I would imagine 70 years in captivity, you get kind of settled in. It's a whole generation. Finding jobs, building houses, having kids, having grandkids. Why would they go? Just because... The king said, you may leave. They may say, I don't want to go. Why? Well, then one word we can say, we'll look at today, is worship. To worship. So let's look at our our, our time together. Let's look at four things. The priority of worship. Let me see if I have that one slide. Let me see. No, okay. We'll look at four things. The priority worship the purpose of worship, the prescription of worship, and then finally the perplexity of worship. So first, the priority of worship. The very first proper response of these exiles leaving Babylon and going to to Jerusalem for this do-over is worship. And and the reason I I think we could simply say one of the things that, that came to me as I was studying and preparing is 
Why worship? Because worship is what got them in the mess they were in in the first place. It's what took them off track. It's what they needed to do for their do-over, to start over, to do it right, to worship. You see, they were in exile because of rebellion. They were in exile because they were chasing after false idols. They were running after other gods. They were, they were trying to be their own saviors, their own lords, to do as they wanted to do. Is it possible? Is it, is it possible that we're spinning our wheels, trying to get ahead, but you feel like your life is not moving much? Could it be that your priorities are not God's priority? That somehow you have came off the track of worship. We get a glimpse of how important worship was for them as we look in chapter 2 even, and the, and the names, we won't go through every name, but in chapter 2, verses 2 through 35, we're given a whole bunch of numbers and names of lay people and non-priests. But when we get to verse 36 through 39, Ezra shows us that there were four clans of priests going back. In fact, there were 4,000, almost 4,300 priests which constitutes about 10% of all the people returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's 900 miles. It's four months. 10% were priests. Verse 40 of chapter 2, there's a list of people who are directly assisting the priests. There's 74 of them. Verse 41, the singers. Verse 42, the gatekeepers of of the temple. Why so many priests? Why so many Levites? Why is this important to have all these people going back to Jerusalem? All these workers of the temple there's no question. Because they knew that the first thing they did, the first thing they needed to do when they arrived in the place that God had promised was worship. Was worship. They longed, these, these priests, these temple workers longed to serve at the altar at a restored temple, which they could not do in exile. God had a specific place and a specific location and the way in which they ought to worship. They desired to rebuild the altar, to rebuild the temple, to restore the worship of their God. They wanted to serve him in the way in which they were called to do. The first thing they did was set an altar in its place and start sacrificing and keep the appointed priest. Look with me at verse 1. It's the seventh month. It was the seventh month. That's important. It's the month of Tishri, which is the Jewish calendar, September, October, and it was particularly sacred for the Jewish people because it started the massive and wonderful festival celebration of the three great feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, which we see here. Now, we don't see the Day of Atonement there because the Day of Atonement, need, we need the temple for that. We need the Holy of Holies. But they, they worshiped. They, they, they built an altar, and it was a, a particularly joyous time as, as, a, as the nation life of worship was revitalizing and it started by the working on the altar and the temple. It says here in verse 1 that they gathered as one man. There was unity. There, there, was, there was unity. There was zeal. There, there was a desire to reestablish the work of the old ways of worship. And, and I could only imagine, if you put yourself there, you've only been there a couple of months, you've trekked this whole th- four months, there probably had to be, they probably set aside probably a lot of things that could have been done to do what needed to be done. Okay, let me say it again. They set aside a lot of things that could be done to do what needed to be done. We get so sidetracked. I get so sidetracked. Right? Doing good. Doing things that could be doing, but not doing what's most important. Not doing what's vital. 
worship of God. So Ezra says that we're back, they're preparing, they're worshiping, and they're building an altar. That's very, very important. You see that in verses 1 through 3. That the first thing they did was rebuild this altar, a very significant precedent. Noah came out of the ark, this desolation by the flood, and, and faced with this enormous task. He's all, the only people left in the entire world is him and those inside the ark. And the first thing he does, Genesis 8-2 says, 8-20 says he built an altar. When the flood descended, Noah built an altar to the Lord, altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, every clean bird, offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, verse three of verse twenty-one of chapter eight of Genesis, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground because of man." For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done before. Noah's like, listen, first thing, I'm thankful. I get a do-over. I get to do this again. I, get to, I, was, I was saved. I was, uh, you know, I, I was rescued. I was delivered. I get a do-over. I'm building an altar. I'm worshiping. Abram arrived in Canaan, the promised land. The first thing he did, Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built. So Abraham built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. These people in Ezra are the seed, the descendants of Abraham. And, and they're making this connection between Abraham and the people that they went back to the promised land and they build an altar. Even Elijah challenges the false prophet of Baal on Mount Carmel. The first thing he did prior to his great prayer was to rebuild the altar. He said to the people, come near to me. So all the people came near and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. 1 Kings 18. By repairing the altar, Elijah was saying to the people, get back in a right relationship. Get your priorities straight. Get your priorities straight through the worship and through prayer. Get your nation's spiritual life in order, revived, and stop committing adultery. Idolatry which is adultery. As Ezra 3 reminds us, put first things first. Establish the right priorities for our lives. The people began sacrificing before even the temple was built through the work of the altar. Listen, they placed the highest priority on their lives, on the people, when they recognized that God was giving them that chance and they worshiped God. Not in the building, but at the altar even before the building was built. Now, in our text, it says burnt offering. You lo- notice it's mentioned in verse 2, and mentioned in verse 3, mentioned in verse 4. That's an offering of a choice animal to make atonement for sin. In fact, the sacrifice, according to the Old Testament law, was done in such a way that the entire animal was consumed. It was, it was symbolic of a way for the offerer who had his sins being atoned for. It was symbolic as, as a total dedication, a, a complete consecration and commitment to God. Look at verse 5. I don't have it up there, but in verse 5, it is a free will offering. Burn offering, free will offering. Free will offering is just what it sounds like. It's a free will offering. It, 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 it was something that, that came from an impulse of the giver who just wanted to show the Lord how much he loved him. You know, worship puts our focus in the right place, for it reminds us who is to get the glory. Now, our church continues to grow. We look forward to the possibility of planting churches, gospel-centered churches. But our task as leaders and pastors will be to keep our eyes focused in the right direction. 
Not upon ourselves or even on church planting, but upon the worship of God, upon the glory of God. As we live on mission with a call to share the good news, share the gospel, to reach our community for Jesus, for his glory. Which brings me to point two, the purpose of worship. We pointed out last week that the most important function of the temple, the altar temple, um, was to provide opportunity for the sacrifice to atone, or to make atonement for sin. Atonement at one meant. Okay, at one meant. To take two that have been separated, that have been alienated from one another, and make them at one meant. At one, again, harmony. Okay? So when God calls Israel and redeems them and saves them and rescues them by his grace out of Egypt... He raises up Moses and Moses comes to them and gives them the law of which they were to govern themselves by. They had a relationship with God and God gives them the law and marks them as his chosen people. The law reveals God's holiness. It's a reflection of who God is, his character. It's a reflection of what he expects. But God's law also shows us how sinful we are and how desperate we are for mercy and for grace. And central to this giving of the law, central to this relationship, was sacrifice, the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood. It actually began, I think, in Genesis 3 when when sin entered the world and God, what did God do? God skinned an animal and covered the sin, uh, covered the nakedness, excuse me, of Adam and Eve. Then we see Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Job all sacrificing. And here, they're coming back from the exodus, and they begin sacrificing again as a way of worshiping God. Now, you may not have heard this before, and I just want to spend a couple of minutes on telling you why they did that. What's the purpose of sacrificing this animal? What's the purpose in this worshiping of God in this way? Right? The burnt offering is not the toast or the dinner that someone cooked in your home. It's not that burnt offering, okay? There were blood sacrifices, all right, it's not, I, I, we're going to talk about blood a little bit. I know maybe some of you haven't eaten, you have an empty stomach, but the Bible is filled with blood. Hundreds of occasions, blood is mentioned in the Old Testament, and many of it has to do with the sacrifices that were given at the temple by the priests, according to the law of Moses. Blood was even shed on the day of Passover, right before the exodus from Egypt. Each house had either a dead lamb or a dead son. Blood was shed. God made it visible through these sacrifices and shocking and and somewhat horrifying if you just think about it so that we would come to terms that we would realize that we would see our sin as God sees it. Horrifying and grotesque and and, and, and deathly and and, 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 and he's, he's holy and he's righteous and God says this is what sin looks like to me. It's grotesque, it's disturbing, it's troubling, it's death, it's evil, it's blood being poured out. You need to see it like I see it. I am holy, you are sinful. Over and over this happened in the Old Testament. Blood was flowing from the temple. What you have in these sacrifices is this living, eternal God who has spoken and provided a way of atonement, a way of reconciliation with himself because our sin had separated us from a holy God and there was alienation, there was separation and God provided a way for us to have relationship with him. God spoken and made very clear what needed to be done. God initiated this relationship. You need to know that. 
This is not man's way of trying to please God or man's way of trying to, to work his way. God initiated this broken relationship to restore it. And the way he did was the way of atonement. Now there's a verse, and we covered this uh, a couple of years, a year or two ago, and we did atonement. There's a verse that Christians, all Christians should know. Excuse me, I, I had that up there a minute ago. My PowerPoints were a little bit messy to, today. Uh, Leviticus 17.11, if you don't know that verse, or at least have an idea where it is, mark it down. Leviticus 17.11, very important verse. Given the law, given the sacrifices, God said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you. God is saying, I have given that to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So sin is serious. Sin by its very nature is a threat to life because it's treason against the giver of life. And blood is the symbolic of life and blood makes atonement not only because it's the life that's in the creature, but it is the bloodshed, the life ending, the death that makes atonement for one's life. One life is forfeited, another life is sacrificed in its place. There's an exchange. There's a substitute. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what we're witnessing here in the worshiping of God in Ezra 3, its purpose is for the people to atone for their sins through their sacrifices. The Israelites knew Knew they were guilty of sin. They knew why they were exiled. They knew that they had rebelled against God. They chased after false gods. They ran after things that were not of God. They knew that that's what got them there. And what they did is go back and atone for their sins. The only way that you and me can worship God, approach a holy God, is by having our sins forgiven And that is through atonement. Someone must pay. That is how forgiveness works on a human level. When someone sins against you and hurts you deeply, you either forgive them and let that sin go, holding back the vengeance, the payment that is due you, or you hold on to that payment and you pay it yourself through agony and grief. That's on a human level. How much more on a cosmic level of an eternal God who created us in his image and likeness that we have sinned against. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. All the symbols of blood, all the death, all the atonements of the Old Testament is pointing to the the, the one and true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is his bloody death and substitute and resurrection from the dead that we can be made right, that we can be reconciled, that we can be one at one meant again with God. And we can worship him. You see, Jesus lived a life We could never live. He fulfilled the law completely and he died the death that we should have died. But he died in our place and for our sins. That was the purpose. Third, the prescription. Even back when I mentioned Leviticus 19, God had declared, this is what you should do. Right? We don't don't construct covenants. We obey them. We We don't decide how to approach a holy God. 
God does, and God revealed by grace to show us what we need to do. Look at the verses in chapter 2, and fo- oh, excuse me, chapter uh, 3 of Ezra, chapter, and verse 2, following. If you read that, you'll see over and over and over again, I have them underlined, how precise the Israelites were following the command of God. Verse 2, they built an altar of God and offered offerings on it, as it is written, what? In the law of Moses, the man of God. Moses wrote this, this is the Pentateuch, this is what Moses said, and they had this burnt offering on the altar. Now the altar was somewhere between 30 or 40 feet wide, 20 feet high, there was a ramp, and the priest would go up and have the sacrifice, he would do the ashes, and he would follow the, act, you know, the precise protocol that God had told him to do. Notice again in the chapter in verse 2, verse 3. They set the altar in its place. They're pointing to the place exactly where God had told them when they got there on the first exodus. This is where it will be built. This is how it will be built. Look what else it says. He did it for the fear of them because of the peoples of the land. In other words, there was people that they were afraid of. So what they do, they didn't, they didn't run, to, to run away. They just said, let's worship God. He will be our protector. And they kept the Feast of Booths. Again, it's commemorating of their deliverance from Egypt that God had declared to them to do. Look, look at verse 4. By number according to the rule as each day required, written in God's law. Verse 5. After that, the regular burnt offerings, offering of a new moon, the appointed feast, written in God's law. The free will offering, written in God's law. Verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. According to Scripture. Even the altar, exactly where God wanted it to be. What does that tell us? One cannot approach God in any old way. One cannot approach God in any old way. Nowadays, we, people think, and even, you, 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 maybe even you think this today, or you know people who do, that we can have a relationship with God any old way we want. You know, any old way we want. We can approach him, it's, it's the God of our mind, it's who we think he is. The Hebrews knew better. God revealed himself to them and, and told them exactly what to do and how to do it. Things got really bad for them during worship if they did not follow the command of God. If they had this kind of, you know, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be attitude, things went really bad. Because God had described and told them and prescribed to them exactly what they had to do. They had to follow that. So as I was thinking about that passage, say, well, what can we learn from that? Because the Old Testament sacrificial system, sacrificial system has been done away with. So I thought, you know what, I'll share with you. There are a lot of new people here. Um, we did a series sometime back, I don't know, years ago. It's on our website. It's called Marks of a Missional Church. Missional Church means we take the posture of a missionaries as we live to glory in God and to live on mission with him. Okay. So I'm going to give you five things. You guys can talk about them in your community group. I'm going to hit them fast. Marks of a Missional Church is on our website. But let me give you five things of what we believe kind of drives us on what corporate worship looks like in the New Testament. Now, if you know your Bible and you know your New Testament, Paul does not say to the Philippian church, when you open up your service, make sure you start with two songs, a prayer, preach the word, three more songs. You know, there's none of that in the New Testament. Because cultures come and go and cultures change. But that doesn't mean that the, we as the New Testament church could just do whatever we want. doesn't really tell us, so you know what? Let's bring in, I don't know. I, I won't even say it because I'll get in trouble. But 
You know what I mean. You can't do things that God doesn't tell you to do, right? So let me give you five things that we here at King's Chapel, I'll go through them quickly, and we'll see. Okay, the description of worship. Number one, we believe that a corporate gathering today for us should be God-centered. Okay, it might sound like, oh, that's not, you know. Ezra 3 is dripping with the reality of God-centered worship. It's all about God getting glory. The Bible is crystal clear and plain that we were created by God in the Imago Dei, in his likeness and in his image for the purpose of bringing him glory. Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Jeremiah 13 says that God chose Israel for his glory. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. 1 Corinthians 10 for the church. So whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Then we are commanded in 1 Peter, Psalms 96, declare his glory to the nations, his marvelous works among all people. So folks, let me tell you about this one first point. God is eternally and perpetually all about getting glory and we are commanded to worship him in such a way with our lives and with our Sunday morning gatherings that reflects and proclaims God's majesty his beauty his 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 incalculable worth that's what glory means value how great and awesome and beautiful and wonderful and treasured is God that's first and foremost First and foremost. Now, you might, somebody, uh, there have been some people in history that have said, you know, God's command, worship me, worship me, worship me, give me glory, give me glory, give me glory. I mean, really? If we said that, we'd be crazy. Right? Worship me, worship me, but not so with God. C.S. Lewis struggled with that until he came to faith and he realized that God demanding his, us to worshiping, demanding us to spread his glory is really the greatest act of love. He writes, my whole more general difficulty about praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what intended we cannot help doing about everything else that we value. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes its enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. In other words, God demands worship and our obedient response to his commands is for our good. There's no greater good in the universe than for God to give him, to give us himself. And there's no greater display of glory than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. That the glory of God is the face of Jesus Christ. The work on the cross displaying the glory of God. That's why we here believe that we are God-centered because we are gospel-centered. It's all about the gospel. For his glory and our joy. As we pursue him, we get joy. He gets glory. It's the greatest need you have. Number two. It's God-centered. Number two, it's content-driven. Right? It's content-driven. We don't wonder what brings God glory. We're not driven by what we feel. Worship does involve feeling. We're going to talk about that. But right feelings flow from right thinking about God. 
As I already said, the worshipers in this chapter, chapter 3, worship God according to the word, according to the prescription of God. Down in verse 11 of chapter 3, there's a singing that they burst forth, all scripture. They're singing scripture. Our worship, therefore, is a response to the revelation. We just sang that song. God reveals himself in his word, all about the cross, all about his promises, all about his covenant-keeping promises in Christ, and we respond with, with worship. Psalm 61, oh, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Bob Coughlin, a great book, Worship Matters, said this in the context of worship. We want people to be encouraged by his promises, challenged by his commands, fearful of his warnings, and grateful for his blessings. We want to see God's greatness in his word. So it's God-centered, it's content-driven, and it is highly participatory. Sometimes, corporate worship, maybe in your brain, let's, let's flush this out for a minute. There's a tense, there's a sense of coming to church, gathering together in Sunday morning. There's a sense where the band and the preaching of the word are, are the performers. The congregation as the audience. And God is somehow called in to prompt us, like, like an offstage person, like reminding us what our line should be and, and, and what we should say just in case we forgot. That's wrong. Participatory worship sees the preaching of the word which is central and sees the music as supportive. And the offstage people, the band, the music, the teaching, the word is the offstage people reminding us of how good God is and particularly how good God is in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit uses that to worship him in spirit and truth. Then we, the people of God, are the performers who participate and perform for the audience of one. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the band, the music is prompting with the work of the Spirit. The congregation is performing to the one mighty and everlasting God. We don't just sing. We sing to our God. We don't just pray. We pray to our God. We don't respond to the word just to respond. We respond to the praise and glory of God. It's highly participatory. It's not people just sitting around having a little private moments with God, although we need that. But when we gather, look at, look at the text in Ezra 3. Verse 11, the instruments are playing. The people are leading. There's people leading the song. They're playing their music. They together break out in a song. You know what the song says? Give thanks to the band. Give thanks to the, the leaders. Give thanks to the Lord. Amen? Highly participatory. Number four. There's only five of them. Authentically experienced. Not talking about music. We're not talking about style. Okay? You'll see in Ezra 3, we'll get to as we close, there's this shouting of joy and there's this deep mourning. What it means is although there is true What that means is, although it is true that you cannot worship rightly without the right thoughts of God through his word, it's also true that you cannot worship rightly without right passion for God. God wants to stretch our mind. God wants to to come into our minds and to see his greatness, but he wants to affect our hearts as well. And, 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 And having a wonder 
of His grace and mercy, mind and heart belongs together. You see, if our theology, our study of God, our understanding of Scripture, our, our, our doctrine is taught, and our hearts are cold toward God, then it may be worshiping in true, true ideas, but our hearts are far from Him. And the Bible's got a lot to say about that. But if, if we're passionate about it, and we don't have right thoughts about God, it's going to fall into idolatry. We're going to have... We're going to have emotion, but our minds will be misleading. Heart and mind must go together. One of the greatest, I believe, one of the greatest um, um, writings on this was one of the things that John Piper wrote. He said this, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of, full or half full of artificial admirers, like people who wrote generic anniversary cards for a living. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. That is so balanced. Heart and mind in place. That doesn't mean that every time we come and worship there, we're going to see that. There's always joy and there's always rejoicing. It's just that it's authentic. If there's brokenness and there's repentance, then there's brokenness and repentance. If there's joy and say, it's real, man. People don't want to see fake. They're tired of fake. They want real. They want authentic. We want to be authentic in our experiences. Number five, peripherally evangelistic. You may say, what is that? Simple. When the first temple was built... Solomon dedicated. We have his prayer. And part of his prayer was this. First temple, Solomon's going to pray in dedication, right? He got called to pray. It's his temple, right? Not his temple, but he built it. Part of his prayer. When a foreigner, a non-Jew, a Gentile who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house where God meets... Here in heaven, O Lord, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know you are great, your name, and fear you as do people Israel, and that they may know that this house I have built is called by your name. It wasn't just for them. Their worship, there's a court of Gentiles, their worship to give glory and praise and worship God was so that the people could see how great God is. You know, in Acts 16, Paul is beaten to a pulp. Him and Silas, they're chained in a jail. And a worship service breaks out. You know, right after that, the jailer gets saved. There was an earthquake involved, but I believe with all my heart, part of that, because they're like, we just beat those guys. They're singing? Are you kidding me? Right? 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, there's going to be some unbelievers in your midst. They're going to be there. They should be there. But you know what? Make sure it's intelligible. We're not talking about seeker-sensitive. Dr. Keller says, not seeker-sensitive. It's seeker-sensible. So they understand what's going on. The Bible says that they will what? In 1 Corinthians. He will be convicted by all. They will see their sin, their need for Christ. He'll be called into account and judge when the secrets of his heart are disclosed, disclosed or will be, he will be laid bare. So the worshiping of God is in truth. The worship of God is in Scripture, but it's sensible so that people understand so that others will go, you, you really believe this stuff? Yeah, it's authentic, it's real. You, you, you really believe those problems? You really, they're, they're, 
these people really are worshiping the one true God. I better get my life in order. I better get my life in order. Right? They're talking to the living God. Their relationship with this living God. He's among them. So as we gauge our God in worship, we invite others to come to have their sins forgiven, to know and to love Jesus like we do. So it's God-centered. It's for his glory. It's, it's content-driven by the word of God. It's participatory. As we sing together, it's, it's, it's authentically experienced both heart and mind. And it's peripherally evangelistic. If you don't know Christ today, I'm glad you're here. We want you to love Jesus like we love him and have your sins forgiven and spend eternity with him. And not go to a place called hell that's for those who are, who are wicked and return their back on the living God. We don't want you to go there. God doesn't want you to go there. We want you to turn. Number four, perplexity. Verse eight and following, we find this, these masonries, these supervisors, um, Zerubbabel, government authority, Joshua, the religious authority, and the priests and the Levites. And we see again this prescription. He returns the following. Verse 10 the builders complete the foundation. They stop their work, and the priests, properly arrayed according to the law of Moses, in their vestment, grab some trumpets, grab some cymbals, praising the Lord. How? According to David, king of Israel. 1 Corinthians 6, David put men in charge. 1 Chronicles, excuse me, 6. 1 Chronicles 16, David appoints the leader. They march in with the ark. So they're like, look, David did this. Let's, let's rehearse what our forefathers did according to the word of God, and let's sing in praise. And, and what, look what it says. They sing out this, this familiar fr- refrain from the, from the Psalms. God is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We're back. We're sacrificing again 70 years. His promises will endure forever. His love endures forever. They were singing about the covenant-keeping God and their return to Israel, and they're worshiping him. Suddenly in verse 12, in the midst of this celebration, many of the priests and Levites and head of the father's house, old men whom had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. The many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish. They couldn't discern the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with great shout and the sounds were heard far away. So these shouts of joy, deep groaning, indicating these people were deeply, profoundly moved in worship. Some were deeply, profoundly worshiping in joy. Some were broken. Older men knew the temple 70 years ago. This ain't like it was. Right? This is nothing like, this is, there's no comparison. In fact, there's no Ark Covenant of the Covenant coming into the temple. There's a lot less people here. This ain't like it used to be. Can you relate to that? Experience of the others who mourned rather than celebrated. Do you know what it's like to feel sad because things are not like they used to be? Things change. Your life maybe has not turned out as you hoped it to be. You know, mourning's a healthy part of life. I know sometimes the church people don't want to hear that. Ecclesiastes is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. You know, sometimes we want to put on our plastic face and avoid sorrow and avoid grief. You're only hurting yourself. It's a reality. It's actually healthy. To appropriately at appropriate times feel sadness over loss. So on one level, we can understand the Jewish people who wept. I think it's important. Jesus wept. In fact, Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and wept, knowing he was going to be raised. 
but he wept because of the brokenness of sin around the world, you know, in the world. Here, we know that their weeping didn't help. And we know that because Haggai comes on the scene a few years later, and while he's prophesying, because they stopped building, he says, all you people that were weeping, you really frustrated the plans, and the, excuse me, you frustrated the actual and discouraged the work from completing itself. So I think we should sympathize with the sadness, but I don't know if this was the appropriate moment. Warren Worsby in his commentary, he says, it's unfortunate when the people, when the unity of God's people is shattered because generations look in opposite direction. The older men were looking back with longing while the younger men were looking around with joy. Both of them should have been looking up and praising the Lord for what he had accomplished. We certainly can't ignore the past, but the past must be a rudder to guide us and not an anchor to hold us back. God's people are a family, not a family album filled with old pictures. They're a garden, not a graveyard covered with monuments to past successes, end quote. So the difference, I think, between generations is not usually about you know, receiving one and rejecting the other. I think the difference is many times we get through with the older generation and the newer generation when both are willing to learn from one another, learn from one another in humility and submission to one another. Here our community groups, we try to have different age groups, different generations, so that we can learn from one another, that we can submit to one another, we can be humble with one another and not get caught into that generational freeze where the young think they know everything and the old are just in the way and the old looking at the young thinking you're an idiot. So what we do, we, we, have, to have, we have to have both. We're learning, we're growing together. That's, what's hap- that's what needs to happen here. But you know, there's this, there's this wondering and, and, and Wonder of, this is awesome, and then there's this weeping. And as I thought about it this week, I said, isn't that the picture of the gospel? We look at the cross and we weep because our sin caused God's son to suffer and to be beaten and to be whipped and to be crucified on a cross. We look at the world and we rightly weep because it's a broken place. There's evil, man, so much evil this week. Injustice, poverty, murder, hatred, and downright ugliness in the world. The Bible says that just like we weep for the renewal of all things, even creation mourns, Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been mourning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves mourn who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as son, the redemptions of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. But the gospel is not just a time of mourning, as, as Paul says, a great time of, of hope and rejoicing. Because Paul s- said, we eagerly wait our adoption. We eagerly wait the redemption of our bodies. You see, as we look at the cross, we see our sin, we see our brokenness, we see the ugliness of the world, and particularly our own sin. And we say, look how much God had to suffer because of human evil, my evil. And then we look at the cross and we look back and we say, but look how much he loves me. Look how much he cares about me. Look how much he wanted me back. Let me tell you, the Israelites in Ezra 3 were worshiping God as they looked forward to that promises in the brokenness around them. They were looking forward to the promises of God's Messiah, the promise of the eternal king, promised to King David, of an eternal king, an eternal kingdom where there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more injustice, no more hate, no more murder. That day it was promised. You know how I know that? 
Look at verse 2. Jeshua Jesodak with the fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil. Look down at verse 8. Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil. He's mentioned twice. And you say, so what? Well, if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, in the very beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew makes it very clear. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. In other words, all the promises of the eternal kingdom, all the promises of a new heaven, a new earth, a, a redemption of the body, an eternal kingdom, Jesus is that seed. Jesus is that lineage from David. He is the promise of David. And you say, okay, that's great. Chapter one of Matthew, again, in the genealogy, just read that genealogy. When you get to verse 11, this is what it says. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, and at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconian was the father of Shantil, and Shantil the father of Zerubbabel. The mention of Zerubbabel, the son of Shantil, shows us that the believing remnant holding on to the promise of a Messiah, a king from David's line. He was there. The promised seed from Abraham, excuse me, from Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, to Abraham and then to King David. And that line has been traced perfectly. Zerubbabel is in that line. And he's here. Jesus Christ is that perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is the one because of his, who he is, what he has done, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. He is the king of kings. He is the one who has promised to come. He is in the line of David. They were waiting. They were looking forward to the renewed earth, to the renewed people, to the renewed place where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sin, no more cancer, no more brokenness, no more murder. They were looking forward to that. How much more are we? How much more of you? You need a do-over? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died in atoning death, rose over sin, death, and hell, victorious from the grave to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from your sins, to get you back on track, to worship the one true God, and that's what you need. So I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know if you've ever trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Have you ever said, I'm a sinner? I have definitely sinned against God. I need a sacrifice. I need atonement. Jesus, you are that atonement. You died for me. You rose for me. If you've never done that, today's the day as the band will play. Maybe you're a Christian thinking, you know, my priorities are messed up. I'm not trying to guilt you into coming Sunday morning. I don't come to church because I have to. I come to church because I get to. I don't worship and sing and read God's word because I have to. I worship and sing and praise God with God's people because I get to. I love it. I hope you do too. And maybe you're at a place, you know, I just need to get right. I need to get my priorities right. We're going to do that. We're going to call the church, and, and if you're a Christian, we're going to call you to repentance. If you're a non-Christian, we're going to call you to repentance and faith. If you're a Christian, repentance and faith in the one true God. Let's worship Jesus together. He's worthy of our worship for his glory and our joy. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful narrative that you have kept for us in your word. This, this do-over, this responding back to Jerusalem. We see the priority was worship. We see the purpose was atonement. 
We see, Father God, that Jesus Christ is our atonement. And Lord, as they look forward to a future, so do we. We have an empty tomb that guarantees the return of Christ. We have an empty tomb that guarantees that life will be renewed. We have an empty tomb that says our bodies will be redeemed. We have an empty tomb that says there'll be a new earth, a new heaven, a new people. Father, help us to joyfully enter into your worship, giving you all the glory you deserve. And Father, we know that that is what we need. And we pray as we sing that you would get glory, that you would be the audience, that we would sing and worship you and you alone. Let us respond accordingly.